we've a mind to, and we stay where we're refined to, as long as we have fun. Oh, we lick the Yanks and Shiloh, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh yes, we lick the Yanks and Shiloh just to see how they would run. Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, is my brother, Jeff. Uh, how's it going, Jeff? Toot, toot. I'm doing good. <laughs> uh, ready to ride the rails again with you, Michael. Uh, it's a uh, true pleasure. Discussing what we're discussing. Yeah, I hope you're doing well, too. Yeah, doing great here. All aboard, as they say, for a second episode talking about the filming of Disney's The Great Locomotive Chase, the 1956 film, which uh, I think it's safe to say that Walt was pretty heavily invested in. Yes, he seemed to be pushing it uh, in pre-production, pushing, 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 and then, uh, like we said last time, he came to see it filmed. So, man loved trains. This was a uh, story from his youth that he loved. He loved trains, and... As you mentioned, he spent a lot of time on set, took two weeks off of the studio to come hang out in rural northern Georgia and right across the border in North Carolina, the mountains where we hail from ancestrally. And so that's exciting. And really, this filming situation set the stage for many shenanigans and anecdotes. It was a clash of cultures. It's true. It's really interesting to see this tiny town interact with the Disney. Uh, even then, you know, to them, you know, to us looking back, Disney seems tiny in comparison to a real family shop. But to them, it was Hollywood coming in big time. So a lot of yeah, funny stuff. To an area that had, had until recently at the time been pretty cut off from the world. Uh, it, had, it had opened up, of course, since... A lot of New Deal projects came to the area, but it was still very rural. And uh, the good news is everybody pretty much seemed to have had a good time. By all accounts, seems that way. Yeah. So uh, what what are we going to talk about today in our conclusion of this epic rail saga? Yeah, so we have a few extra stories for you that we couldn't put into part one. At first, we're going to talk about... Some of the people from town who helped make the movie happen, um, some people on the technical side, and some people on the acting side. You know, the whole town got into this hosting, but also uh, being a part of the production. Yeah, it's so funny that. I mean, why have character actors come in from Hollywood when you can just find local folks who apparently have a little bit of acting talent and are keen to go in front of the camera. Who knew? It turns out the uh, local columnists were right. You know, if, if, if half a dozen men could do what Jeffrey Hunter did, maybe. <laughs> you never know. And then we have a real treat. We have uh, Bill Kurtz joining us. He was the grandson, he is the grandson, of Wilbur Kurtz, who was a uh, technical director on this film. A real, uh, you know, know it all about the great locomotive chase was Wilbur. He was the preeminent authority. And uh, so he he reminisces. He got to visit the set himself. And we talk a lot about his grandfather and his roles in uh, Gone with the Wind and Song of the South as well. Wow. Yeah, really excited that you got to talk to him because, I mean, his whole family, uh, deep historical roots in the Atlanta area. 
His grandfather was a repeated advisor for Hollywood, as as you say, and uh, big in Southern historical circles as, as focused on this era. So very preeminent guy and very excited that you got to talk to him. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Uh, a man after our own heart was Wilbur Kurtz, his attention to detail and getting the details right. Uh, he took it to high, high level. So can't wait for you all to hear that. And finally, we're Michael's going to tell us some about the wonderful, there wasn't one, but two premieres of this film. Uh, another, you know, kind of close to Walt uh, thing. He was all around for those as well, Michael. Absolutely. Two big events. Walt and Lillian present for one, and then Walt and Roy and their wives for the second, which was held in their hometown, so to speak, of Marceline, Missouri. So, obviously, a lot of things very close to Walt's heart. Yes, yes. So dear to his heart, you might say. Uh, Absolutely. Well, uh, sounds good to me. I'm ready to hit the rails I guess Let's I have my bindle packed. <laughs> so uh, as, as we get ready to go, as we build up the steam in the boiler there, uh, why don't we do what we did last episode? Let's check in with Fess. See what old Fess Parker's got to say. By now we had our trains, our track and our stations. It was time to begin thinking about the people in the story here in an open air casting office, producer Larry Watkin and director Pete Lyon, interview native Georgians as potential actors. For a true story of the South, we wanted real Southerners, looks, language, and all. People from many walks of life help make our picture. In fact, there seems to be talent everywhere. A waitress in real life was our waitress in the Lacey Hotel. Our thespians included a charming lady from Atlanta, a couple of Clayton drugstore clerks, the porter of our hotel, and the owner of the cafe where our boy fireman worked. One of our railroaders was the president of the Clayton Chamber of Commerce. Our recruits included the wife of a local grocer, a salesman whose line was puzzled, and Harvey Hester, who owns one of the most famous restaurants in the South. As we mentioned in the last episode, the filming of The Great Locomotive Chase was a fruitful collaboration between the town of Clayton, Georgia, and the folks at Disney who brought a cast, crew, and locomotives from all over the country to the mountain town. This is a huge economic boon for the tiny town of Clayton, and people got in on the act in almost every stage of production, from building sets to filling out the ensemble, as well as casting and hosting the out-of-towners. One of these Clayton natives was Frank Rickman, who was a person who could get stuff done for the production, whether it be in construction or procuring items needed by the production team. Rickman was on his way to becoming a legendary figure in the area and state a modern-day Davy Crockett was how he was often portrayed in the newspapers. He was the son of the Sheriff Frank Rickman we quoted in the last episode and was born in the city jail in Clayton in the 1920s. From an early age, he would catch dog for his father, as he called it, or catch moonshiners fleeing the police from a scene. He would be sent to North Africa and Europe in World War II, having landed in Normandy on D-Day and killed the guard dogs in Dachau when they liberated the concentration camps, according to him. 
Rickman would return to Georgia to farm and work in construction when he was hired to work on the set of The Great Locomotive Chase. Rickman certainly had the gift of gab, so it would be a shame if we didn't have a clip of him telling his own story. And thanks to Foxfire, a nonprofit in the area that collects stories and lore from all over Rabin County and southern Appalachia, we do have a clip of Frank describing how he came to be noticed by Walt and the Disney crew. Way back when I worked for Roosevelt Coffee in the grading business, Walt Disney come in here and made the great locomotive chase. Well, then I was the go-between between the mountain people and the movie people. And Walt Disney got me to go around and and uh, get the mountain people to let me take the board roofs off their houses. We didn't have cedar shakes then like we got now. And I got people to let me take those board roofs off their house, and then I put them in new tin roof or asphalt roof back in the place of that. Well, then Walt Disney got to watching me work around there, and finally, when the trains come to bring the truck, when the little TF railroad was still in here then, and when it come to bring the locomotives in from California, they had loaded them in California on uh, railroad cars, but they'd had to lay railroad track up on them flat cars because the locomotives were so heavy, they'd have pushed through the floor and they laid a track railroad track up on top of the car till they wouldn't push through the floor. Well then, who when they come in here to make it, the man that was supposed to look after getting them things unloaded, he didn't do his homework. And then when the train come in there, me and Walt Disney was standing up there at the old depot and two or three more, and we could hear the little old train coming and pulling them, and it was a chugging along, and Walt Disney looked over at me and he said, Frank said, no, he first looked at the man that's supposed to do it. And the man turned plum green because he'd overlooked that. And there wasn't nothing here big enough to pick up a locomotive that weighed 200 tons. And so uh, I felt sorry. I was standing out here this and I, I heard the man that uh, was supposed to do it he just turned every color in the rainbow. Well, that's the only time I seen Walt Disney lose his cool. And he got excited because they decided that they wanted to take him back to Atlanta and let two railroad cranes set him off on the tracks. Well, I was just an old punk boy and I was standing there and I felt sorry for that man that hadn't done his homework. So I said to him, I said, I can unload them things. And he says, shh, shh. He said, don't let Walt Disney hear you say that. He said, these locomotives is his pets. And he said, if you was to scratch one of me, they have a heart attack. I said, I don't care. I can unload them safer than you can taking them back to Atlanta. Well, Walt Disney didn't want them, since they was fine antiques, he didn't want them drove to Atlanta and unloaded and then drive them plumb back. And then I, that's when I said I could unload them. So Walt Disney overheard me talking to that old boy. And he said, Frank, did you say you could unload them? And I said, yes, sir. He said, just how would you do that? He said, they weigh 200 tons. I said, well, I'll go up here on the railroad track and wherever we've got a side track, I'll take up about a hundred foot of railroad track 
and I'll take my front end loader and move that track over out of the way, and then I'll start ramping down, and then I'll lay the track back in there, and then I'll roll that flat car down in there, and it'll then I can roll the, the locomotives right off on the on the line and out through there. And he says, can you do that? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, you got yourself a deal. He, he didn't listen to nobody else. He just listened to me. And I done everything he had to do. Well, then in about a week, I had Lincoln Webb. And Lincoln Webb had worked with me and for me. And Lincoln would do anything I told him. Well, these movie people, is all, they act like they're all specialists. They just want to do one thing, which one thing's all they can do. And we was doing everything. When I got all that stuff on to work with for the movies and everything, then one day he eased around to me and he said, Frank, he said, I found out and talked to the local people and I found out what they think about you around here. And he said, I don't want to start no trouble. But he said, I want you to go to California and be with me. He said, I think I need you in my business. And he says, you talk to your family about it and see if you can get it worked out and let me know. Well, I went home and told Sarah and I was a big punk and hard up and just had two babies. And I went home and told her, well, she never had liked these mountains too good then. And boy, that tickled her thinking we was going to get to go to California, you know. And so in about a week, walked in and he's back up to me. And he said, Frank says, what's your family think about it? I said, well, everybody liked it but my daddy, and he didn't like it. But he said, I said, uh, I, I think I'll do it. Well, walked in and says, now, Frank, I'm going to tell you right now. I know enough about you and I've done what you work. And he said, I know what you'd be worth to me. And he said, I'll give you X number of dollars for 40 hours and all over 40 hours, I'm gonna pay you time and a half. And the amount that it amounted to, me being born up here in these mountains, I didn't know nothing about big money. And I was the highest paid construction man that was, and that's a dollar and a quarter hour. And when he offered me that big money, I thought he was a crook and just trying to get me to go to California. So I looked at him in my mind. I didn't say nothing to him, but I said to myself, the president of the United States don't make that kind of money. And if you think you're going to get me and my wife younger than California and us no damn way home, you got another thing coming, partner. And so I wouldn't have nothing to do with him. I dodged him. <laughs> I dodged him from being home for a long time. Then finally he, he said that... Uh, he wanted me to go, but I told him I believe I wouldn't go, but I'd stay around here, and, and then I'd just stay around here and run what come my way. Frank Rickman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it had to be up to something, had that be offering that much money. That is oh. too funny. Just imagine him uh, working in California. I just love. I was to thinking think about that it. too. What would that <laughs> even be like? Him, <laughs> him in California in the middle of all that. I just love Walt. I mean, Walt's like I see somebody who can think on their feet. I like that. That's right. 
Come on well, down, that man. Was, that was such a moment. They even put it in the uh, behind the scenes special, you know, where they explain how they did it. So that was, and they filmed the whole thing. So that mm-hmm. was a big workaround that Frank helped with. Uh, we should give it up to Foxfire. They are a great organization. Yeah. Um, the Foxfire books, if you've ever run across those, it's a lot, a lot of great, you know, old living tips, you know, how to build your cabin and cook on a wood stove and all that. They have a great museum up there and a great podcast called It Still Lives. You should check that out. It has all these interviews and more. Um, really great resource that up there. Yeah, it's really good folklore material. Really amazing stuff they chronicle. Right. Well, Frank Rickman, though he wouldn't move, uh, was not done with Hollywood. In fact, would be instrumental with his work on the movie Deliverance and location scouting, technical advising, set building, and even voice work. They had him dub a voice because it uh, he had that that voice of his. Uh, after that, he would be a key player in setting up the Georgia Film Commission, which has certainly been a huge force in the rise of all the production that goes on in Georgia these days. Uh, Rickman was at the fore of that, working on films such as Grizzly, The Long Riders, The Four Seasons, and much more. In fact, in 1978, Rickman would return to work for Disney in the wonderful world of Disney TV movie, The Million Dollar Dixie Deliverance, in which Rickman had a speaking role as a sentry. You can just see him right there in the movie. He went Hollywood after all. He finally made it. The Million Dollar Dixie Deliverance name sounded familiar, but I did not remember. And then I watched part of it to to see Frank, and uh, it's something, man. It's uh, I bet those nineteen, those seventies, like late seventies TV movies, are kind of obscure, hard to find. I, I know yes. I've never seen that one. Yeah, there are things you read about, like in the annual report, like we're filming the Million Dollar Dixie Deliverance. I'm like, well, right, that never that never happened. That was I think a thing. Probably and then it's like, it. oh, it, it was a thing. It was on TV. Yeah. Well, Rickman didn't only work in film, however. Him and his bulldozer were never far from developments in North Georgia. Rickman would partner up with some investors and clear off the mountains for Sky Valley, Georgia's only ski resort, which is now unfortunately defunct. But the chalets that Rickman built with the blueprints in his head are still there. You can go see him. He also participated in several wagon trains, one for the bicentennial from Atlanta to Valley Forge, and the other across Georgia to raise money for regilding the Capitol Dome in Atlanta. So quite the character, he would have been something to see working with Walt and Burbank, like I said. Yeah, well, it's just amazing to think, I mean, just, you know, a a good old boy from the mountains, but clearly like a driven promoter kind of guy. Yes. And I mean, doing all this, all this stuff is amazing. I know, I know. And just, yeah. But should have gone, should have gone to Disneyland though. He should have. He would have. Yeah, he could have been a great foil for uh, Dick Nunes. Can you imagine? (laughs) Here's two guys who can get stuff done. Let's put them together and see what happens. (laughs) Shake the jar and see (laughs) what happens. (laughs) Well, the production of The Great Locomotive Chase wasn't just a pivot point for Frank Rickman. Starfest Parker would experience a revelation in Clayton that would shake him and determine his path forward particularly in his relationship to Walt and the studio. Here's what Parker said in an interview regarding finding out that the role of Martin, 
stand aside, Martin, in the searchers, was originally his to refuse. Quote, I was still modestly paid. They had sent me all over the world and exploited me in every way possible, and I'd done everything I could for the opportunity. I wasn't consulted about the searchers. I was en route with Jeffrey Hunter, who played the role, and Walt Disney on the way to Clayton, Georgia, for our locations for the Great Locomotive Chase. The conversation turned to Jeff's greatest experience in his life, which he described as the searchers. Walt Disney turned to me. We were sitting in the back seat, and he said, they wanted you for that. I was a newcomer, but I realized even then that you don't get too many shots, and I'd already been heavily exposed in one dimension. Then the movie I was cast in, The Great Locomotive Chase, there was more tender loving care of the locomotives than their live asset. That's coming with the heat, man. He don't like that. that. Salty mountain ham right there. Uh, Furthermore, Fess had this to say about Walt and the people he hired. He wanted the last word. He didn't want anybody to challenge him. When we did the great locomotive chase, he put a producer in place who had never produced, Larry Watkin. The director was a man who had been an Academy Award film editor. Lion was his name. He had put together the Cult of the Cobra at Universal and pasted together the newsreels of Bob Mathias to make the Bob Mathias story, and those were his credits, coming into making this picture at a distant location with some extremely difficult logistics and with a screenplay. When I had a chance, I said to Walt, this screenplay just doesn't feel quite right. Historically, the character Andrews was significant, but from a storytelling point, everyone had to root for Jeff Hunter to catch us because there wasn't any story otherwise. So every move turned out to be somewhat less than it might have. I mean, I will say, I think he's kind of right about the story that it is a little bit ambiguous in what it's, you know, it's, it's clearly all about the action. The story is kind of convoluted in what it's, it's like two protagonists from, you know, you don't know who to root for, but yeah, exactly. You know, you can blame it on wanting the locomotives to be the star or whatever. But uh, if I may say, Fess wasn't exactly lighting up this one. Uh, no, no, no. Doesn't have that Crockett charm. Definitely. Or even the Jeffrey Hunter charm. Can I just say, I mean, you know, yeah, it's true. Jeffrey Hunter has a twinkle in it. That famous Hunter twinkle. But uh, now just imagining Fess and the searchers, that's weird man you know what i the mind goes to ethan no you don't no you don't ethan <laughs> ethan no you don't no no you don't no you don't ethan i think fest was perfect for davy crockett and he was great and i think he was clearly really self-conscious about this and uh, you know all the even the behind the scenes with fest parker goes into you know like I don't know, just a lot of the interviews at the time, he was just like, I don't want to be, I want to do other things. I want to be, which, you know, good for him. But Davey was a golden goose for him. Yeah. Also lightning in a bottle. Right. So aside from the black eyed peas and cornbread, he was getting in Clayton. Soundless like Fest was getting pretty irritated. Things would only go downhill with him and Disney for years after this first coming When he renegotiated his contract, uh, Disney balked and then Fess balked at the role in in the movie Tonka. So it was put on suspension and then relegated to bit parts such as his role in Old Yeller and Light in the Forest where he's just kind of there. Until he was finally released and set out to try to work with other studios. I didn't realize that. Don't say that. Fess? Yeah, really. 
Back in Clayton, the Atlanta Constitution reported that the production purchased 1 million feet of lumber, the equivalent of five five-room houses, which is a funny fact. The lumber came from local mills and went to the construction of a number of realistic railroad stations along the Tulula Falls Railroad. And the railroad uh, itself, of course, received money and engineers uh, were used to run the trains. Uh, they just had to hide. So the engineers were actually running the trains were the TF engineers. The head of the Chamber of Commerce, Jim Lovell, was about as busy as he had ever been helping with the crew and fending off hotel requests, preparing for record crowds of onlookers on the weekends to see the set, along with housing and feeding the huge Disney crew. In addition to this, he had many letters of inquiry to answer. Michael, I need to write a good letter of inquiry sometime. I know. I can't even remember the last time I did, but I, I, <laughs> I've got so many things to inquire about. <laughs> Hundreds of letters of inquiry are rolling into Clayton. People Here's want sirs. to know. I am interested in your new product. (laughs) But Jim was eventually hired on to be a local casting director, something he had been working on since the beginning of the production for free. And it is in the acting cast that we see the most notable reflection of the town of Clayton as they hired a ton of people to be in this movie. Uh, We mentioned the Reverend Dillard in the last episode, but he was in no means alone in participating in the movie. Wonderful, Reverend Dillard. According to the Clayton Times, Mrs. Edward Norton, wife of Clayton's Mayor Pro Tem, was the first Rabin County regular to be signed for a part in the filming. Mayor W.S. Bearden claimed this was the biggest day Clayton has ever had. I bet you there were 10,000 people that passed up and down these streets. And Bearden had a rather outsized role in this movie as well. And I tell you, these some of these people, you cannot tell they're not Hollywood people. They just seem like they've been acting. I mean, he yeah. I could have sworn he was like a bit actor, you know, but he was just the mayor. It is like character roles that uh, they are indistinguishable from just regular character actors. And uh, in all the um, hype and talk in at the time really praised the reverend like everybody was oh yeah really really into his performance yeah but it is it's not it doesn't feel like people they got off the street it feels like people that came from central casting which is kind right. of amazing when you think about it truly well they got paid for it man they got uh, actors with speaking roles paid 70 dollars a day uh, actors performing as extras received 10 i mean that's not uh insignificant and for just standing there. around not for right. doing like hard work right uh, there were a lot of them a who's who of clayton and georgia personas this included harvey hester who was the owner of aunt fanny's cabin uh, the most famous and now infamous restaurant in georgia located in smyrna Hester was a legendary promoter known for knowing Jack Dempsey and other celebrities, making a cameo in I'll Climb the Highest Mountain just a few years prior. A lot of overlap between these two films. Um, also in the cast were Mrs. Lucia Cook, prominent in Atlanta drama circles. Bob Corley, an announcer for Atlanta's WQXI and one-time portrayer of radio's Beulah, whatever that means. Uh, Bruce Hefley and John Colick of Atlanta, Paul Jones, drama critic of the Atlanta Constitution, seems a little cheap there, and John Fulton, the manager of WQXI. So a little Atlanta who's who there. Really? Getting the media establishment behind you there. (laughs) Right. 
But the actor who was featured the most in the film was a young boy named Doug Bleckley. Doug would work after school at the Pickrick Cafe, managed by his cousin H.J. Ramey. Every day after school, he would go to work at the Pickrick and then head home on a five-mile walk down War Woman Road to his family house where he was one of nine children. During his time at the Pickrick, he was noticed by Larry Watkin and Francis Lyon on a pre-production trip to Clayton. They had him audition for the role of Henry Haney, the boy fireman of the Texas. Bleckley did so well in his audition that the Disney crew hired him to a duration contract, now that's some money, and had him featured in many scenes in the film. Now let's hear a little bit about Bleckley's experience in this interview, also conducted by Foxfire. Now I was uh, 11 year old at the time, and they came in, got to talking to me, and Asked me, you know, if I would be interested in being in the movie. So I didn't know really anything about it. So I came home and asked my mother. She had to give it a lot of thought before she would let me even think about letting me be in the movie. And people kept encouraging her, so she decided she'd let me be in it. And people kept, they come back in the pit rick and asked me for an interview up at the Clayton Hotel, which is old. Clayton in now, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, they signed me apart and told me to let my hair grow out and everything. They'd get back in contact with me. So during that time, they went back to California and they came back to get ready to shoot the movie. And they uh, talked with me again, gave me another part that one had first assigned me to do, and want me to, the part they wanted me to play. And, uh, from then on, it was on on the scene. They, uh, I was in school then, and uh, school had already started. And that was uh, they had to had me a tutor on the scene on the set where they were shooting. They get ready to shoot a scene, I just have to leave my classroom and go out for that. They filmed then, which took. Uh, I hear the I don't recall just how long it stayed here and then he went to I went out to California to the studio and finished filming the great locomotive chase out there. And then a year later, in the fall of the next year of fifty six, I went back out there for advertisement and was on the Masketeers for a week series out there on advertisement on the Great Locomotive Chase. You remember exactly what Clayton looked like when they was making the movie. Yeah, it has changed uh, a great deal at the time when they were filming the Great Love Love Chase. It was just a, it was a booming place. Uh, uh, filming the movie and they, they put a lot of people to work that hadn't never hadn't worked and, or had a public job really. They worked worked carpenters and now anyway, you know, you, they had things for people to do, building the crops and things for, for the movie. And I'd say at that time, that was the most money that was ever in Raven County. It was, it was brought in here about that movie. And then there wasn't any textile plants here. The only thing that was here then was a shirt factory. And that, that worked on, you know, most people that worked there was women. And they put, they were just a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of money involved. They didn't, they wasn't a tight bunch of people. They really, 
They really spent the money and, and paid people good wages. Can you tell me again what, uh, what your character's name was? The one you played? The one I played was Henry Haney. I was a fireman on the Texan. And I only had a few lines to say. One was talking to Slim Pickens, and his, he played the part of uh, Mr. Bracken as an engineer on the train. And it was, uh, here's your coffee, Mr. Bracken. And the other line was to Jeff Hunter, who's dead now. And he was, uh, uh, I'll fire for you, Mr. Fuller. He played the part of, uh, uh, I can't remember the Fuller. It was in the, he was something in the Army anyway. You said that Walt Disney and all of them were nice? They were real nice. Yeah, I met Disney and he talked to you and all the, the directors and all the other stars, Fess Parker, all of them, they were real good. They were just plain down to earth people. About the most dangerous part about being on the trestles and stuff? Yeah, we had to shoot scenes of in the movies, we had to catch a runaway boxcar with an engine, and we had to catch it right on the trussle. And the old wooden trussle, they'd just vibrate and wobble, and the train jump up and down. That's a pretty scary part. We had to do that several times to get the shot right by catching the runaway boxcar. They'd turn loose to try to block us all. And, uh, that was the most frightening thing then. And was dangerous, probably. On them high trussels, wooden trussels. It was an experience for my whole family, really. And that was, there was been no high life too much except for that thing. You say you were one of nine children? Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, I was one out of nine. And, uh, what they think about it today? Well, at the time, they, when they was filming and actually got through with uh, Disney, I got a letter from Disney asking if we'd move to California if they'd put me under a contract, which at the time, uh, they were still six of us at home, and my dad had only been dead a year, so she wouldn't hear of that, so all that blew on. <laughs> what a story. I mean, this kid working at a diner, getting this big role and getting offered a contract uh, with Disney. That is, yeah, it's really amazing just to think of him going from up in the hills to going to Hollywood to be on the Mickey Mouse Club. Right. And just what that must have been like. Oh, I know. And he... When he was out there, he went twice, like he said. He visited Disneyland, uh, you know, <laughs> the year it opened, the home of Roy Rogers, uh, and had a Thanksgiving dinner two years in a row with Slim Pickens, which, who, how many of people can say that? I, I wish I could. I mean, what a claim to fame that is. <laughs> right. Thanksgiving with Slim Pickens. I think it's cool. He cleared his schedule because he had tutors out there. He had his cousin who worked at the uh, Pickrick was with him as his guardian, but he requested that he come home one of those times uh, by train, which had to have been pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That would have been see the country. Yeah. You just have to wonder what, what they saw in him because obviously they must've seen something in him to make that offer of a contract and, what his life would have been. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a big decision to make. 
It is. And it would come with a lot of, I mean, you know, so you look at somebody like Bobby Driscoll, it's not a slam dunk, you know, exactly. to, yeah. to take that life on. Uh, yeah, there's something about him in that film. I mean, he's pretty magnetic. It, I don't know what it is, but I can understand what they saw in him. You know, you watch that and they, they put him in all these scenes and he's just, it's just like he is just very natural and very unassuming and just belongs there. You know, he it doesn't look like he's scared of anything. You know, he just looks like he's the kid in the scene, you know? Yeah. Walt, I mean, Walt pretty famously liked very natural child actors, not stagey child right. actors. I mean, right. that was what they did with the Mouseketeers. They wanted real kids. They didn't want stage kids. Right. And so he must have seen the appeal there. Yeah. Well, it, you know, that Lion and Watkins are, you know, said they could have brought in somebody from Hollywood, but they thought that somebody here would, would do the job better. And it seems like this crew in Clayton really did uh, do the job of filling in this ensemble quite well. In fact, some of them have more prominent roles than the, you know, Hollywood actors. And, you know, they all got listed in the credits. So what a story for all these people. Yeah, it it must have been a thrill for them to see when they finally got to see the movie. And their names are up there in the credits just along alongside the Hollywood stars. So it must have been a big, a big deal. We're camping tonight on the old campground. Give us a song to cheer our weary hearts, a song of home and friends we love so dear. Many are the hearts that are weary tonight. Coming to Georgia, we found ourselves on the home grounds of the man who knows most about the great locomotive chase, and it was only natural that he should become our technical advisor during production. His name is Wilbur Kurtz, and here he shows a Confederate soldier how to hold his rifle. Historian, scholar, artist. Wilbur Kurtz is a friendly man, so let's visit him in his studio in Atlanta. Oh, Mr. Kurtz. Hello, Fizz. This is my grandson, Wilbur Kurtz III. We call him Billy. Hello. Hello, Billy. We've been using a lot of clips from and referencing the Disneyland TV episode Behind the Scenes with Fess Parker, which chronicled the making of The Great Locomotive Chase and aired in 1956. During that episode, we take a visit to the studio of the technical director of the film, Wilbur Kurtz Sr. Kurtz was a preeminent historian on the Great Locomotive Chase and many details of the South and the Civil War, and an excellent painter and writer as well. Towards the end of the visit with Kurtz in his studio, he brings out his grandson Billy, who greets the camera. And we are lucky enough to have Bill Kurtz, Wilbur Kurtz III, in with us today, and are excited to talk about his grandfather and his experience with this movie. So, Bill, welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. Well, thank you. It's great to have you here. This is exciting to 
talk about this. Uh, so your grandfather was a real authority in the, on the history of this event, and it was all kickstarted from reading an article in a Chicago newspaper in 1903 profiling the event. How did that interest manifest itself after that? Well, when he read the article, it immediately got uh, his attention. Of course, history had always been uh, something that he loved, uh, and from that article, he interviewed seven of the remaining raiders that were still alive. And after he did that in 1904 was the first time he came to Atlanta uh, to interview William A. Fuller, who was the conductor of the locomotive general and my great grandfather. Uh, from there, it uh, led back and forth to uh different trips to Atlanta to, to continue the exploration. And then when he moved to Atlanta about 1911, he continued uh, his research in detail of the uh, actual event that occurred on April 12, 1862. Yeah, we hear in all these newspaper clippings, uh, you know, everybody talks about how far into it into the details he went, you know, uh, some people say bullet by bullet, you know, he knows everything that happened. Uh, what do you think inspired that level of, of research for him? Well, again, it was the fact that he had met uh, the remaining Raiders and Fuller. And as he continued on with his research, he got more and more interested in it. Now, he was uh, also uh, studying the Battle of Atlanta from Dalton to Jonesboro, uh, which he spent uh, just about all of his life on doing that. And this uh, Andrews raid or Great Locomotive Chase was just part of that uh, history research that he wanted to do. Well, yeah, and you mentioned uh, Captain Fuller is your great-grandfather, which means Wilbur met his daughter, Annie, who he would go on to marry, and she was uh, a historian in her own right. Tell us a bit about her. Uh, that That's correct. She uh, uh, also was uh, very interested in Atlanta history and wrote numerous articles uh, for the Atlanta newspaper, uh, of which my grandfather would illustrate those articles. Yeah, and he was an excellent artist. Very uh, Again, you can look on that Disneyland special. They have some examples of his art, really beautiful, evocative art. So you mentioned he moved to Atlanta in, in the 1920s. Uh, in the 1930s, uh, he was well-known. He met Margaret Mitchell, uh, and that would go on to be an important partnership. That's correct. He met Ms. Mitchell uh, in the uh, early 1930s. Now, he already knew uh, Ms. Mitchell's father and brother, but had not really uh, been introduced to her formally. Uh, once they were introduced, they became very close friends because here again, Ms. Mitchell had an intense interest uh, in the history of Atlanta, of course, as my grandfather did. And so uh, their relationship uh, lasted all the way through her death in 1949. Obviously, Margaret Mitchell, very famous for Gone with the Wind. And when they started making that movie, they tried to have her go out and supervise the production. She tapped your grandfather to do it. But can you tell us a little bit more about that? She did not really want to go to Hollywood and get involved 
in all the action out there with respect to the film. So she asked Mr. Selznick if my grandfather could come in her place. Uh, he, of course, agreed. And then he went on to Hollywood in the uh, first part of 1938. And what was his experience like out there? Oh, it was uh, it was something. Of course, he was concerned from the beginning that consultants to Hollywood films would not be listened to. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't, you know, wouldn't follow what his advice was. And because uh, he re- he remembered a lot of movies that uh, that came about that were just, uh, you know, not historically accurate. They were, they were just uh, uh, done to please the Hollywood producers. <clears throat> One movie that came to mind was the the movie The General mm. uh, that Buster Keaton. Uh, it was his film and he starred in it, which was absolutely absurd it was right. you know it was supposed to have been based on the great locomotive chase but it uh it was uh strictly a slapstick comedy and had no no relation to history whatsoever right yeah that that is not historically accurate um well it seemed like uh selznick was probably more receptive to his counsel than than he feared, probably, I would think. Yes, he did. He uh, he, uh, he really did listen to my grandfather and also instructed his producers uh, to, to, if they had a question of any kind re- with respect to the film, or the book, rather, to, uh, to contact him. Yeah, and I mean, down to, yeah, again, what a great person to have on your team, your grandfather was. Uh, for them, you know, down to making sure that the color of the clay was right, uh, according to what I've read. Uh, what was his uh, tool for that? How did, they, how did they make that work? He, he contacted uh, one of his sons and asked him to go to the intersection of Peachtree and Baker Streets in Atlanta, where he knew there was a red clay embankment. And... Uh, he, uh, the son, got a sample of, of the red clay and put it in a small candy tin uh, and then shipped it back out to, uh, to Hollywood. And they had great difficulty in, in trying to reproduce the red clay because there was nothing like it in California. So they had to somehow replicate it. Uh, at first, they tried to grind bricks. Uh, that didn't work at all because when they ran it through the grinder, the bricks would uh, just come out in chunks. But then they got the idea of using roofing tile, which uh, was very common in California, and they ground that up, and it came out uh, as a powder, which they would spread on the uh, set on which they were filming. And uh, as my grandfather said, it made him homesick for Georgia when he saw it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's ends up being such a, such an important part of the color palette of that movie. And, you know, it gets all over them and, you know, and when they're in the streets and so that was an important detail to get right. And something that you would, would take you out of California, you know, uh, that red clay, very distinctive. Uh, he, he had your dad measuring lampposts as well, didn't he? Or something like that. 
Yes, the, uh, <laughs> there were about 14 lamps on the uh, Atlanta street scene, and uh, they could find nothing that looked like it. So he contacted my uncle, uh, Henry Kurtz, uh, and ask him to go down to the Daughters of the Confederacy building on Jennifer Street and measure that lantern because it was exactly the type that was used, uh, that would have been used in Atlanta at, uh, in the eight to early 1860s. Uh, he went down and he climbed a pole and began to measure the lantern when two police officers walked up <laughs> and asked him what he was doing. And, uh, he told him about uh, that his father was out in California uh, with uh, moving on with the wind, and he had asked him to get measurements of the lantern. Well, the, the police officers uh, actually believed him, and uh, he went on about and measured them and then sent them out to, to his father, uh, who made measured drawings, of which I have, uh, of the lanterns, and... Uh, they were sent to the carpentry uh, shop at uh, Selznick Studios. And my grandfather said, if you could describe it or draw it, the carpentry shop could build it. And yeah. they did. They replicated the lanterns and uh, they were uh, historically accurate. That is great. And I, I, you know, this, uh, the movie making at that time when they wanted to get it right, like you said, they could, they could those people in the fabrication units could get do anything it's really impressive well gone with the wind was a huge movie everywhere but it was a real seismic event in atlanta where they held a premiere of the movie and all of hollywood descended to kick off this epic motion picture i've seen pictures of your grandfather posing with the stars this must have been a true out-of-body experience for for him and your grandmother well, this, not only to my uh, mother and grandmother, uh, but also, and you're correct, with the city of Atlanta, because Atlanta had never seen anything close to this type of uh, notoriety. And uh, when the film uh, premiered on December 15, 1939, there were hundreds and hundreds of people uh, outside of the Lowe's Grand Theater in Atlanta uh, to see uh, Ms. Mitchell and Vivian Lee and uh, all the other actors. And uh, it was it was quite a spectacle. Yeah, I mean, just wild. And there he was right in the middle of it. So what a cool experience. Uh, I, I imagine, you know, it was this role in Going with the Wind uh, that made Walt Disney come calling for your grandfather to play a similar role in the production of Song of the South. I imagine the accuracy really appealed to Disney. He really uh, loved getting stuff right like that. But how did how did that play out? Well, Mr. Disney was, of course, aware of the uh, uh, of his participation in the movie Gone with the Wind, uh, and realized that he was an expert on Southern history uh, and uh, plantation life in the 1850s. So, uh, Mr. Disney uh, or one of his people contacted him and asked him to be the advisor for the film. Uh, unlike Gone with the Wind. He did not go to Hollywood because my grandmother was quite ill at that time and did not want to leave him. So everything was handled uh, on the telephone or by mail. Uh, 
Now, Mr. Disney did come to Atlanta and met my grandfather, and my grandfather took him down uh, to Eatonton, Georgia, uh, where uh, was the home of Joel Chandler Harris. And he took uh, him and a one of Disney's principal artists, uh, Mary Blair, down in Tewood, Putnam County, uh, and Eatonton, and showed them around and even took them to uh, a plantation that was still uh, standing and in good shape so they could get an idea of what a plantation house looked like. Then he took them around and showed them split rail fences and briar patches and things of that nature that they were interested in. And he even took them to a, a working plantation in Adairsville, Georgia, so they could uh, get further uh, information about the plantation life. That is extraordinary. We are huge Mary Blair fans, and nobody could get the kind of impression and the color like she could. Uh, I imagine Walt really enjoyed that trip. It seemed like, you know, country life, farm life is something he held dear from his childhood. So I'm sure he was having a lot of fun doing that tour. Yeah, from what I understand, he really, really appreciated it and enjoyed uh uh, seeing it firsthand. That's amazing. Was there anyone else uh, involved on that trip that you know of? Uh, I'm not aware. Uh, could have been, but uh, I, yeah. I do know that uh, Mr. Disney and Ms. Blair were there. Well, and so they give credit all, as well to your grandmother, uh, even though she was ill. Uh, was she involved? Uh, how was she involved in the in the production? Well, she, uh, from a technical standpoint, uh, as with going, her participation in Gone with the Wind uh, was very familiar with Southern etiquette at that time and uh, uh-huh. accents and, and things of that nature. So she was able to provide some information uh, along those lines. Interesting. Interesting. So Song of the South comes out and Disney starts to pivot more to live action uh, filmmaking. Gone with uh, Song of the South also had a debut in Atlanta, did it not, uh, if I'm correct? It did, at the, at the Fox Theater. Yeah, and they both, both f- those films had uh, Hattie McDaniel in it. So a little that, That's sh- exactly right. Shared uh, history, but... What a, uh, what a great actor she was. I mean, just yes. nobody... That I can think of, or anybody else can think of, that could play could have played those two parts better than uh, Hattie McNamee. Absolutely, and of course, Song of the South has James Basket as well, who uh, did an amazing job. Um, oh yes, he sure did. Uh, but as Disney pivoted more into live action filmmaking, one of the earliest ideas. Uh, that Walt had was to do a movie based on the great locomotive chase. Now, you know, according to his legend, he, uh, you know, on the TV show, he says he was interested in this in the family library. I've seen a a great uncle of yours quoted saying that your grandfather suggested this as a, as a movie. Do you, do you know anything about that? Or was he just contacted to help out? No, he was, uh, you know, born willing to help out and do anything that he, uh, uh, could possibly do to assist. Yeah. I mean, I imagine for him, he would be really excited to, uh, participate in a movie, uh, by somebody who wants to get the historic details, right. About this subject matter. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. 
And so, uh, you know, it, it happened that they found this railroad, the, the Tallulah Falls Railroad, which, you know, was about 50 miles down the road from where the actual chase happened. Uh, and by this time you were around and even involved. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your observations uh, as that started to happen and what your grandfather's experience was making that as well? Well, in 1955, my grandfather invited my mother, father, and I to come to Clayton to observe uh, some of the filming uh, of the Great Locomotive Chase. And as uh, as you pointed out, the uh, the Tallulah Railroad was a very important aspect of this. Uh, number one, the, the the scenery in that area was almost identical to that of the original uh, chase. Uh, and the engines that uh, were on loan to Mr. Disney, uh, the gauge of the track would fit the track of the Tallulah Railroad. So there was no having to do no modification to the undercarriage or to uh, the wheels. Well, yeah. And the, and the, not to mention, uh, it was an area that was not developed whatsoever you know, it was kind of like a time machine at that point in time. My grandparents grew up uh, just across the North Carolina border. And in fact, my grandmother grew up right between kind of filming locations off the TF um, for this. And it was, you know, uh, they hadn't had electricity for very long in some of those places. And in, in a, it was a simpler time up there. Well, it was just—it was absolutely perfect uh, yeah. for for the location. I, I don't know whether they could have found a, a better one. Of course, the original route of the uh, Andrews Raid—you know—it had grown up, and as you said, there were telephone wires and everything else in the area that uh, uh, just plain would not work. But the uh, Tallulah Railroad and that area of Clayton was perfect. I, I read in an article where they would ask the kids uh, who were sitting there watching the filming how you would say, I think one of the words was authorized. How do you say that? And then they would get them to say it and then they would feed it back to the actors. I mean, how, uh, I, I bet your uh, grandfather was very busy on this one, making sure, you know, they had to modify some of those locomotives and there was a lot to get right uh, historically. It seemed like they were pretty thorough. Well, you know, the, the, the engines were, were almost perfect. They did have to make some cosmetic changes to the uh, exterior of the engines. But otherwise, uh, uh, unless you were an absolute expert, you, you would not have been able to tell that they were not the original engines. Right. And the, <laughs> I think it's funny that there's a lot of uh, stuff made about, you know, Captain Fuller famously ran a lot uh, to catch up to uh, the next locomotive. And there was a lot written about Jeffrey Hunter's ability to run. I think even your, uh, your great uncle weighed in on that as well. Uh, so <laughs> they, they had to pass the running test too. Uh, to... There was a lot of uh, exercise in those scenes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when you got to go up there, tell us what you saw. And I mean, you were at the ripe age. Uh, we talked to another guy, Scott Gerard, who uh, 
you know, was in grade school when Disneyland was being constructed, grew up right across the street and got to see it uh, being built. You're kind of the same age as him. So you were, you know, you were watching Davy Crockett on TV, weren't you? Oh, I wouldn't miss an episode. And yeah. I had the coonskin hat and uh, everything, all the paraphernalia that went along with it. So what was it like going up and meeting Davy Crockett? I, oh, it was uh, it was an experience. I first uh, my grandfather first introduced me to Mister Disney, uh, and, and uh, he he was such a gracious man, nice man, and for him to take time to to talk to a ten year old boy uh, as he did was just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I then met. Fess Parker, who portrayed James J. Andrews. And of course, that was Davy Crockett, as far as I was concerned. I mean, right. he, was, he was nobody else, I, you know, and uh, what a thrill that was. Uh, then I met Jeff Hunter, who portrayed my great grandfather, William A. Fuller. <clears throat> he likewise, uh, as uh, Mr. Disney and Mr. Parker were, just very friendly and nice, uh, enjoyed the conversation. And I remember that uh, uh, Jeff Hunter lifted me up on the steps of, of the uh, uh, locomotive that was used as a general. And uh, I walked up into the cab of that locomotive. And I, I mean, it, it was the doggonest thing I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen so many knobs, pulleys, levers, <laughs> and everything else. And uh, even then, at that age, I wanted how in the world did anybody drive a piece of machinery like this well yeah i still wonder that i mean it's it seems like quite the uh ballet really uh, so were they filming that day when you were up there uh they were not okay but uh the extras i, I they may have uh started again that afternoon but uh most of the extras were there of whom i i met several and uh uh and of course Walt Disney and Parker and Hunter were there. And uh, uh, since they were there, they must have been preparing, as I recall, for for filming at some point in time that day. Well, as always, there's always weather concerns in the mountains there. It's just like our Central Florida listeners. You get an afternoon shower almost every day. So there was a lot of waiting around, but... You know, everybody there in Clayton just commented on how nice everybody was. And uh, it's, I think one of the reasons I'm so drawn to this story is that they just embedded themselves in that community. I mean, not only they had a bunch of cast from Clayton and the Atlanta area, but, you know, when filming would stop, just like you're describing, they would sit there and and talk to everybody. Walt Disney went into the store and would talk to the guys and eat some cheese. And it just seems like they were just having a great time. Well, you know, as, as far as the citizens of, of Clayton, uh, Walt Disney and all those other people, uh, and Disney to them were just plain ordinary people. I mean, there, right. there wasn't any, there wasn't any putting on or anything like that. They just enjoyed meeting everybody. And, uh, it was just a great time. Yeah. I mean, how cool to meet Walt Disney. I mean, that is a very, very amazing thing. Um, I'm so glad he was nice to you. (laughs) Oh, he was. He was. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then you got to be in this great uh, documentary, which I'm so thankful they filmed. Um, and this is just such a, you know, this is what I loved about the Disney company of this time is they would take the time to talk to your grandfather and your grandfather would bring you on. And I mean, all of that is such a great little bit of history that you wouldn't see today. But can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, we, uh, my parents took me over to my grandfather's studio uh, in Atlanta where they were doing uh, a part of the behind the scenes with Jeffrey Hunter. Uh, and uh, I, un unaware, I, I was going to take part in this. Uh, and they handed me a script, which <laughs> uh, if I'd have had two weeks to study it, I could have probably memorized it. Uh, so fortunately, they cut it down to one word, and that was <laughs> hello. And uh, uh, that was a great Great relief, but that in itself was an experience to, uh, to to see how that type of filming was done with the large cameras and the lights and, and all of that. It was it was just something else. Yeah, his studio looks really incredible too. I mean that that had to be a cool place for you to visit, even when there wasn't filming going on. Oh, absolutely. Um. But yeah, you really did that line with gusto, did it well. It's funny, it's all filmed like a conversation uh, with your grandfather and Fess Parker. So I imagine that took a little bit of, to get right, but uh, it's such a great little part of the thing. Oh, and yes. um, So that wasn't the end. You heard a little bit more from uh, Disney after that was done. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, for my participation uh, in uh, that segment, uh, Mr. Disney sent me two original cells that were used in the production of Lady and the Tramp and Peter Pan. Each one was autographed by Mr. Disney to me. I received a letter uh, from a Dwight Babcock who was with Disney thanking me on behalf of Mr. Disney of uh, participating uh in that and those are, are cherished items uh that i have and uh i even that was my first paycheck i got 25 dollars <laughs> for uh for participating in that and of course at 10 years old and 1955 56 that was uh that was more money than i'd ever heard of and i oh yeah i just knew i wasn't gonna have to work the rest of my life uh <laughs> i had 25 dollars that Unfortunately, is, uh, I cashed the check, which I wish uh, my father cashed the check, which I wish I had not done, uh, because it was uh, it was on a Walt Disney production check. It had all of uh, Walt Disney's characters, Pluto, Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, uh, uh, on the check, and but I cashed it, spent the money, and I regret it ever since. Oh, I know that'd be a great a great item to have but i'm sure you know the joy of cashing that check was considerable at that time like you said oh it was it was huge <laughs> yeah we haven't even talked about your father i mean you know he was a historian in his own right your 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 family has the history of atlanta uh, on lockdown can you tell us a little bit about your father well my father of course uh like my grandfather, uh, 
was very interested in uh, also the history of Atlanta and uh, the Battle of Atlanta and the events that uh, surrounded that. Uh, he went with the he, he joined the Coca-Cola Company about 1940, uh, 39 or 40. Uh, and of course, during the time he he became an expert on the history of Coca-Cola and uh, uh, Coca-Cola to him was everything. I mean, he uh, he loved the company and he was there for about 38 to 40 years. Uh, toward the end of his career there, uh, they asked him if he would uh, form an archives, which Coca-Cola did not have at that time. So he spent about the last five or six years of his career putting together the archives, organizing all the history of Coca-Cola all the way back to uh, Pimbleton and the creation of the syrup of Coca-Cola. That's interesting. It was in that time frame because, uh, you know, we, our listeners and, and Michael has some experience at the Disney archives. It was done in the wake of Walt's death around uh, 1966, so they had to be around the same time. Boy, I bet the Coke archives has some incredible pieces in it. It, it is unbelievable. I have not seen it lately, but uh, I visited my father there in, uh, in the archives on numerous occasions. And uh, it, it, anything to do about Coca-Cola, the origins, et cetera, was there. Wow. Uh, the orig- original documents, and uh, you just can't imagine uh, what, what uh, he put together. Yeah, it seems like a company much like Disney that really preserved their stuff well. And it's really great for historians that they have, you know, that's such a great, great thing. So did you uh, by chance have any uh, the opportunity to attend the premiere of the Great Locomotive Chase when it came to Atlanta? Uh, I, I did not attend the premiere. I do not recall why. Uh, I, I wish I'd been there, but of course, shortly thereafter, uh, I did see it. And uh, to this day, it is, it's just a great movie. Uh, I watch it uh, frequently. Uh, matter of fact, I almost know the dialogue, but uh, just such a great movie and very, very good for my age of 10 or 11 to, to see that on the big screen. Uh, just Absolutely. wonderful experience. Yes. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Is there anything else you want to tell us that was on your mind when I asked you to do this? Uh, well, I, I just appreciate uh, you asking me to participate because I uh, I love uh, talking to different organizations about my grandfather. Uh, you know, I'll do anything to perpetuate uh, his memory uh, and all the things that he accomplished in his life, which were just so numerous, you can't even possibly think uh, or remember uh, all of them. But, uh, you know, I was, uh, I'm very proud to have been his grandson. Uh, I, I just think it's great that he brought you into that show. I mean, that just shows a tight family bond. Uh, yeah, the more I looked into him, the more I was stunned at all the things he was involved in. You know, when I was a kid going down to Atlanta, you know, the cyclorama, he, worked in restoring that. I mean, all this stuff, uh, preserving and uh, illustrating uh, just an incredible legacy he's left behind. I want to thank you so much for coming on, being willing to do this. It's been great to hear these stories, and I really appreciate it. 
Well, I certainly appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jeff. seen the preliminaries, bits and pieces. Now let's put them together and relive the excitement of the most thrilling of railroad adventures. Well, when you consider how excited Walt was about this particular film, perhaps it's unsurprising that The Great Locomotive Chase had a big gala premiere. In fact, it had two. And these weren't Hollywood premieres either. One took place in the South where the film was set and the other took place in a very familiar Midwest location. The big world premiere took place on June 8th, 1956, in Atlanta. This was an all-hands-on-deck, two-day affair that saw Walt and his actors wined and dined throughout the Atlanta region. And boy, this was quite an event. You know, when you forget just how long ago 1956 was, stories like this really knock the point home. Atlanta was a very different place. Yes, it was uh, the capital of the South and... All that came with it in the 50s. <laughs> exactly. As we shall yeah. see. The fun began on Thursday the 7th, when fans turned out at the Atlanta airport to greet Walt and Lily. Reported one journalist, the producer, relaxed and affable, signed autograph book after book. So I'm going, Walt, Walt very casual, relaxed and affable. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, Walt and Lily had flown in directly from New Orleans, where they had visited friends and shopped for antiques and items for Disneyland. Now, the first thing this made me wonder is what were they buying for Disneyland? And is this the famous trip where Walt bought the animatronic bird, which would inspire the Tiki Room, ah, which was bought point. in New Orleans? Uh, I found dozens of different stories online talking about the bird purchase, but nothing actually said when he bought it. But it would have been wild if this was the same trip. So it's true. They seem to make it to New Orleans quite often. So, but yeah, I mean, Maybe. it's definitely possible that time frame would make sense. Bothering um, everybody at the event talking about yeah. this. You got to see this you thing. See this bird. I got. That evening after they arrived, the Disney's presided over a Disneyland ball, a spectacular costume ball of around eight hundred guests which was held in their honor in the grand ballroom of the Dinkler Plaza Hotel. <laughs> the ball was held by the premier event's two sponsors, the Georgia Federation of Women's Clubs and the Young Matron Circle for Tallulah Falls School. So you can only imagine how mid-century Southern society this event must have been. I can just see the cottage cheese and pineapple. Uh, oh, yeah. Somewhere on hand. Definitely. The event had a heavy Disney theme, with guests asked to wear costumes or carry accessories representing Disney characters. It was apparently quite a big deal. The Decorations Committee chairman, one Mrs. Rhea T. Eskew, reported to the media that, quote, her group's efforts of the past three months are shaping up nicely for the event. She also talked about how they'd roped the menfolk into helping for oh, everything wow. from Babysitting to construction. So babysitting. 
Yeah, yeah. I know. Can you hmm. imagine? Their own children. <laughs> right. And what decorations these were. Everything had a Disneyland theme with a railroad station forming the entrance to the ballroom, of course. A front view of the locomotive general featured a headlight which served to spotlight guests as they entered. So it was ah, kind of like, nice. you know, fancy prom entrance there. Suspended over the ballroom was a large mobile depicting the four major realms of Disneyland, Fantasyland, Frontierland, Adventureland, and Tomorrowland. I would love to see photos of this. I know. Yeah. I mean, every time I'm hesitant, uh, you know, if you, you theme something after all the realms of Disneyland, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. And just a big mobile Please. Yeah, yeah, come on. Behind the bandstand was an elaborate backdrop of Sleeping Beauty's Castle, and there, Bill Clark's orchestra played music from various Disney films, including special arrangements of songs from The Great Locomotive Chase. There were two large main refreshment tables, and they were also decorated. This is described in great detail. One had a three-dimensional representation of Dumbo, which I'm sure was terrifying. Uh, It was said to be nine feet across as a backdrop. Uh, The other was decorated to appear like the Frontierland Bar. I'll be going to that one. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Walt and Lily weren't the only stars of the night. Fess Parker, Jeff Hunter, and Jeff York were all on hand as well. In fact, they led the grand march into the event, sharing a dance with local bells. After the parade of costume guests, the costumes were judged by Walt, and prizes were awarded for best-dressed individual, couple, and group. There was even TV coverage by WLWA, which presented an hour-long telecast covering the event's highlights. I need that on YouTube. Come yeah, on. that I hope that exists somewhere. I just need to see Fess and Jeff and Jeff doing their like Virginia Reel or whatever they were doing right. with the local bells of the ball. I want to see Walt as a judge because you know he was <laughs> loving that. Yeah. There are some there are some pictures of that that I did see of him with people with really kind of disturbing Disney costumes, and <laughs> he seemed to be quite pleased. Yeah. Uh, other guests that night included Joan Crawford and her husband Al Steele. I guess Joan was down there doing espionage on behalf of Pepsi at uh, Coke headquarters. Uh, Fest Parker's parents were there; they had flown in from Texas. A lot and of parents, man. A lot of parents, yeah. And many of the Georgia locals who had featured in the movie, they also got to come down for this. A seat was even reserved for the 82-year-old William Fuller II, the son yeah. of the conductor of the general in the movie. Hmm. Jeffrey Hunter's character. So uh, he made an appearance with his family. But that wasn't all. The next morning, there was an hour-long parade down Peachtree Street celebrating the film. The parade was led by Georgia's governor, Marvin Griffin, and Atlanta Mayor William Hartsfield. Yes, the guy the airport is named after now. The Third Army Band and other local groups provided marching music, and Fess Parker, Jeffrey Hunter, and Jeff York all appeared in costume on floats depicting scenes from the locomotive chase. This is sounds amazing. This is a parade I would go to. I just... I imagine it being spectacular. 
Also on hand were locals from the Clayton area, including W.S. Bearden, Reverend Dillard, his son Derek, and Doug Blackley. So everybody got to come along and be in the parade. <laughs> I wonder what they thought. I can't even imagine. Uh, Walt and Lily were in the parade, naturally, as were a slew of Disney characters. And children along the route were given balloons, ice cream, candy, and comic books. So not a bad deal there. Nice. Yeah, it was a big, big event. The gang was then treated to a luncheon at the Capital City Club before attending a press reception at... And I wish I were making this up. A popular local restaurant called Mammy's Shanty. Mm-hmm. This was indeed a real place. Look it up or don't, considering that it was pretty awful. Uh, weirdly, a different press report said that the press event was at the aforementioned Aunt Fanny's Cabin, which was also a real place and possibly even worse from what I've seen online. Uh, but judging from the fact that Mammy's Shanty was actually on Peachtree Street and the other was out in Smyrna, I assume they had their big event at the Shanty. And I'm telling you, this search sent me down a rabbit hole of old Atlanta restaurants and man alive, it was unpleasant. Yeah, there's some stuff with uh, Aunt Fanny's Cabin, which I looked into. Very, very disturbing. Yeah. I could just do a podcast about the horrific aspects of Aunt Fanny's cabin that I came across in like a five minute search. Like, yes, how was this a thing? Yeah. Yikes. Anyway, as somehow both not so long ago and also a million years ago. Thank goodness. Thankfully. Anyway, that night was the big event and Walt and Lily and all the stars arrived in their cars out in front of the Lowe's grand theater the same theater where Gone with the Wind had premiered in 1939. Uh, they arrived to waves of applause from fans. This was like a big deal. This was a big premiere. Cleek lights and everything. Uh, Fess Parker turned to the crowd and told them, I'm sorry to say I play a Yankee, but hope the people of Atlanta will forgive me. Really, I'm just a country boy. Mm-hmm. Inside, the evening's program began with an animated short, Jack and Old Mac. Which I love. Directed by Bill Justice. Jeff, <laughs> I gotta just take a moment for this short and the mental image of it premiering to a theater full of people in tuxedos and evening wear. I am way into it. When I found out that this was on the bill, I was really obsessed because this is one of those really special uh, shorts just of who it involves in the uh, production of it. But yeah, one of those weird shorts where you're like how did this get made how did it get made but then you look and as you say like everybody on the production staff is like oh my gosh yeah you know extensio just a whole Mm. bunch of people and uh like ivan earl and and it's just such a weird obscure little short when i saw i saw this um you had sent me photos of the program for the for this event and it was listed there as like overture Jack and Old Mac. Right. I could not believe that that was what accompanied this movie. And just uh, picture everybody just sort of nodding along and smiling as this unspooled. This, yeah, this is the million years ago I'd like to jump back into. Uh, you know, if it was all Jack and Old Mac back then, yeah. just put me in a time machine and put me back there. Bill, they loved your cartoon. <laughs> they read it really, really well. They loved your picture, Bill. <laughs> oddly a one media report from before the event said that the short to be shown was going to be how to have an accident in the home <laughs> uh, starring of course the legendary character jj fate 
that doesn't seem to have been the case, but how amazing would that have been? Would have been an interesting tone to put out there right from the start. <laughs> Welcome everybody to our event. Here's how not to electrocute yourself. What uh, in the world? With Donald yeah. Duck. It's probably a good choice to change it to the more benign. Jack, Jack and Old Mac. Mac. Yeah, less intimidating for sure. Yeah. Although it would have been a big signal boost for J.J. Fate, which I'm it's in favor true. <laughs> It's true. The cartoon short was followed by one of Walt's People and Places featurettes, Men Against the Arctic, which was written, directed, and narrated by the great Winston Hibbler. What a program this was. I know. I mean, this is like the real sweet spot, in my opinion, of the studios. You know, you got the great, this talent and animation still there. And then you've got these great, I mean, I feel like his documentary stuff is so great. And then the, you know, beginning of this historical drama. So a lot of serious stuff. And then, yeah. you know, a little zany, but, uh, yeah, if it really great. was Walt, like showing out, like here are all the things I can do. I can yeah. do cartoons. I can do mm-hmm. featurettes. I can do movies. And man, the children of the scene. world should have a place built where they can be in a canal <laughs> boat, right? Exactly. I wish those people in places were on Disney Plus. Just got to. And they were supposed like, to be originally. I, I think they said they yeah. were going to do a new one. They're going to do yeah. some new ones. They had said at the start. I don't know what happened. I to that. really wish they would have and put the old ones up because uh, see a remastered version of it would be. I mean, they were in Cinemascope and Technicolor. Yeah. So. I one would assume they looked pretty good. I know. Put them up. Put them up. Once they got those cinemascope lenses, more of those made, they could they could do it. Uh, after the featurette and before the main feature, there were a number of presentations. Mayor Hartsfield took the stage along with members of these sponsoring organizations to make presentations to Walt and the movie stars. As all proceeds from the event were to go to the Tallulah Falls School, Mrs. Henry W. Moore, president of the Georgia Federation of Women's Clubs, presented Walt with an honorary diploma from that institution, seeing as how he had never graduated high school. Walt got some laughs from the crowd by responding, this is just what I needed. (laughs) Which, depending on tone, could go a couple of ways. The crowd seemed to think it was funny. Walt also received an engraved ship's bell from the Coast Guard icebreaker East Wind, presented to him by Vice Admiral A.C. Richmond, Commandant of the United States Coast Guard. This was in appreciation for the Men Against the Arctic featurette, which was a documentary showing the Coast Guard in action. And this was something that felt like was made one of the biggest deals of like the Walt Disney's bail. Yes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) treasured bell from the east wind uh to cap things off walt announced the winner of an all expenses paid trip for four to disneyland which must have been exciting Mm -hmm. after that the movie played and it was well received by all it got a rave review in the paper even Uh, but just as warmly received by the film's crew was the georgian hospitality said fest parker of the shooting location i don't know when but one of these days i'm coming back to clayton Jeff Hunter agreed, saying, One of the nicest things that ever happened to me was filming the movie in Clayton, and I'm coming back someday. They loved it. They loved it. But Walt's busy summer was not over yet. The film was to have a second premiere, dubbed the Midwest premiere, 
in Walt's tiny hometown of Marceline, Missouri. The 4th of July event was on the occasion of the dedication of Walt Disney Memorial Park, a one-acre park near the town's country club, which was to also feature a dedication of a municipal swimming pool, a $78,500 swimming pool they were proud oh, yeah. to announce. Oh, yeah. Raised it all themselves. Don't see that many big Midwest premieres, do you? No, you don't. You don't often hear that one. Uh, This was another two-day event. Walt and Lily, along with Roy and Edna Disney, all flew in from Los Angeles to Kansas City on the 3rd. They were to attend an evening reception at the Country Club in Marceline, sponsored by the local Chamber of Commerce and JCs. But due to plane trouble in L.A., they didn't arrive until after midnight. They had to fly into Kansas City and then had to take sedans to Marceline, which is a long drive. But even their late arrival didn't dampen the enthusiasm of the waiting crowd who had stayed up late to welcome the Disneys. They hit the refreshment table and were good to go, apparently. Stayed there all evening and were there to welcome Walt when he arrived. The next day, July 4th, had been proclaimed Walt Disney Day by Mayor Jack Wren, who declared that it was Marceline's finest hour. The Uptown Theater hosted the film's event with Walt and Roy standing out front welcoming each young guest in person. The crowd was so large by Marceline's standards that it lined up a block in each direction, many ticket seekers were turned away. Senator Thomas Hennings Jr. and John Dalton, who was Missouri's Attorney General, were also on hand. They always got up, wherever there's a crowd, they'll be there. (laughs) Walt made a personal appearance before the show to address the kids in the audience, and this is where he made his oft-repeated statement, My best memories are the years I spent in Marceline. You children are lucky to live here. He also made throughout the event jokes about like outhouses and like cow ponds and things like that. So he was obviously feeling sassy during this entire event. Outhouses. Outhouses informed many of my early cartoons. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. After the event, city officials and old classmates of the Disneys joined guests at a buffet luncheon at the home of Dr. Robert Smith before everyone headed to the park for the opening festivities. Around 6,000 residents of the area, much larger than the population of Marceline itself, attended. It was a big event with bands playing John Philip Sousa and everything else you might imagine. Walt commented on how John Philip Sousa was just his favorite music. (laughs) Walt addressed the crowd again, saying, Although I lived here only five years, those were the formative years of my life. I have been fortunate to be able to follow my ambition and boyhood dreams with the help of so many talented persons. He also paid tribute to his brother Roy, saying, Although I have been rambunctious at times, my brother has always held a firm check on some of my wild schemes. (laughs) Very true. Imagine Roy laughing at that. Mm. Oh, you telling me. Roy at least got a little compensation when he got to join Walt to judge a bathing beauty contest featuring 44 girls from surrounding counties. After conferring with the other judges, Walt crowned Ms. Deanna Kelly, a 17-year-old brunette from Marceline, queen of the celebration. With that taken care of, the mayor cut the ribbon to open the pool, and it was christened by a group of around 50 boys all jumping in at once to make an enormous splash. With that, Walt's great locomotive summer was over but at least he was able to return to Disneyland where his very own train awaited him. Tonight on the old car. 
So that wraps up our deep dive into the great locomotive chase. Michael, uh, how does it feel coming out on the other side of uh, the exhaustive history? There's still more to be talked about, actually, but but we'll leave it at that for now. We'll leave it at that, uh, but there are, as, as with so many things, there's always more to talk about. But feel good, you know, on the rails again. It's always good to hit the rails and see what you can see. I'm, I'm a big train advocate <laughs> so oh yeah uh, this this is fun to talk about you see the appeal in in the story for walt very much so so it was fun to really dig into this yeah and if you're ever in the atlanta area you should take the trip you know you could do the kennesaw you could go see the uh the texas you could see uh, you know all the the locomotives involved and uh go up to clayton and franklin it's a beautiful trip so absolutely email us for um, tour advice that's places right. to stop email us podcast at progresscityusa.com yeah we'll give you some hot tips on places to stop but you had a lot of help uh, a lot of local resources in digging around for this story didn't i you? did i did especially the rabin county historical society were very helpful they were very curious what i was up to uh, and very friendly and I appreciate their help and the library and all sorts of folks I talked to that um, yeah, that we haven't shared but an interesting time and some family that have some memories of this so absolutely real it's interesting unexpected connections to the left and to the right but That's it right. is great you mentioned the historical society there's so many good people doing good historical work out there and you know, even in these small towns and these small areas, people archiving and keeping the history and doing a great job. And I just think that's great. Absolutely. And very necessary. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, North Georgia is a really interesting place. There's a lot of interesting history up there. You know, the, the Tallulah Gorge and the resort area up there. So, again, worth a trip, but uh, very kind of yeah not not your typical mountain bird there's something different about that yeah. area um, head on up through there go through franklin head up to cherokee oh yeah sure see so yeah and over there where some davy crockett was filmed over in the smoky mountains park so it's true regardless we're gonna watch the caboose heading over the horizon with old henry haney <laughs> uh making sure everything's safe and let them go. And uh, before we go to what's next, Michael, I want to check in and see if anyone's joined our Patreon this month. Yes, they have. We are excited to welcome to Patreon this month, Brett and Mary and Wilson, whoever that is. 
Hooray, uh, hooray. Hooray, hooray. Welcome to the Patreon. They're, of course, signing up for early access to episodes, early access to documents that I'm putting into the Progress City Public Library, so sort of rare Disney ephemera if you're into that sort of thing. And, of course, at the silver level, you'll be joining us for our monthly live stream event, which is always really fun. And for anybody keeping score, I wasn't able to participate in the last two live streams because my internet was so horrible in the mountains. But I'm excited to say I'll be back, um, which will be fun because I missed, uh, you know, the first one I could follow on chat and this the second one I couldn't even do that. So it'll be good to be back. Yes, uh, it will be very good. It'll be very good to have you back. (laughs) Talk about a high wire act. My goodness. I'm sure everybody will be very happy about that as well. And uh, you too can join in for all the fun. Also get yourself a little packet of Progress City swag. And uh, and it's all tax deductible. Did I mention that? Yeah, you can deduct it from your taxes. So help us out with all our little efforts here at patreon.com slash Progress City USA. Yeah, thanks to you all who have already signed up for that. We really appreciate it. Uh, Mary and Wilson, I think I met them at the Retro Magic event. I think yeah. They there. yeah. They tend to show up for these things. Yeah. They're always at the trail's end, if you will. <laughs> That's where you can catch them. So, yeah, as Michael mentioned, you can email us, podcast at progresscityusa.com. Please drop us a line. We get the most interesting emails. And uh, and like you know, we've said, you may appear on the show. If you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, Michael is at Progress City USA, and I am at Jeff G. Crawford. Michael, what is coming up next? Well, I'm really excited for this one because we are going to be talking to somebody who I have wanted to talk to for a long, long time, even before we rebooted Ye Old Podcast, I have wanted to talk to this person. Uh, we are going to have a mega two-part interview with Peggy Ferris. Peggy, who had a 50-year career with Disney, starting on the Storybook Land Canal Boats at Disneyland, taking her through a long career at Walt Disney Imagineering, She did so many fascinating things and met so many fascinating people along the way. She herself is a fascinating person. I am so excited to bring this to you guys. Yeah, it's, uh, I have listened uh, to a lot of this has been editing. It's a real treat. Everyone. It's one of those, you know, she's one of those people that just is in there at the right time and just catches so much interesting, different uh, historical things so please tune into that it'll be a real treat and then yeah. we'll roll into the fall and all beyond so exciting times here uh, great interview with Peggy coming up please tune in and on that note from all of us to all of you we will see you in two weeks with Peggy Ferris so long everyone Right now, it's time to go. Remember... Everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. 
So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.